Spontaneity versus structure is what I want to talk about. Like, in general, I believe life requires a balance between the two. Spontaneity, like freewheeling, let it ride versus structure, planning, all of that. And depending on your personality type, one end of that spectrum is going to be more appealing to you than the other. I mean, some of us, we love to plan. We love, some of us even love spreadsheets. <laughs> uh, we love, we love order. We love everything um, put together. We thrive in structure while others feel suffocated and love to, to just let it ride. Now, having said that, I believe that in times of disruption, in times of chaos, there is something to be said for moving towards more structure rather than less. And we've seen this in human history so many times. Say, after the fall of the Roman Empire, when the Visigoths, they sacked the city of Rome, um, and everything in their society was turmoil, you saw many Christians enter into the monastic movement. Uh, In other words, they became monks because it provided a structured and ordered way of life for them in an absolute sea of chaos. You may be familiar with this. It's the Rule of St. Benedict. It was a guidebook written in the year 518 by a monk, Benedict, uh, and it, was, uh, it provided guidelines for monks living together in a monastery on things such as how to foster a community, how to activate powerful prayer, how to work productively, how to, how, how to, create, how to actually create culture. And incredibly enough, the Rule of St. Benedict, I said 516, originally, it's still being used by Benedictine monks and and Benedictine communities today. I think that there is a desire in the younger generations for more structure, not less. I could be wrong. I, I could miss that entirely. But I think the digital existence of our moment has proven to be largely a failure. Like the, the digital life of, of our phones, this, this is not making us fuller human beings. Um, it's, it's not satisfying the deepest desires of our hearts. And I think among the younger generations, at least, there's an openness to creating like new habits of life, new relational rhythms and practices that can do in some ways many of the same things that they were doing in monastic communities. You know, um, achieving calm and serenity and, and activating prayer and having, like doing good work. New rhythms of life are needed because the rhythms that have been given to like every, everybody in the iPhone generation, these rhythms are not working. It's not working. And so what I want to do this afternoon is look, as I said, at John chapter 15. It's a famous passage. Jesus speaks about a vine, and he specifically says that what I expect of my followers is for you to abide in me, abide in the true vine. And I want to talk about how do we do that? How do we go about forming new habits and practices that actually enable us to abide more in Christ? That's what we're aiming for. John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. And I would love to go into greater detail about the pruning metaphor, but I I won't have enough time in this sermon. Suffice to say that most likely the way that God prunes fruitful branches. You know, pruning is like cutting, 
cutting him off, the most likely way that he does that is through suffering. And he goes on, verse 3, You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me as I also abide in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must abide in the vine. And neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not abide in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is, how to, this is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Abide is a word that we rarely use today, although it did achieve pop cultural stardom thanks to a hilariously quirky Coen Brother movie. Jeff Bridges is the lead actor, and he plays this slacker from Los Angeles who loves to bowl. And so at the very end of the movie, when he's like survived every kind of crazy ordeal, I think there were like Russian assassins trying to kill him, and it was this you know, crazy crime comedy. Um, he's in the back in the bowling alley, and the, the, he basically says the, the, the key line of the movie, which is, the dude abides. Yes, the dude abides. And what does it mean that the, the dude abides? If I were to say to you, though, this, attention, everybody in the sanctuary, here's what I want you to do. I want you to abide in this room until I return. What would I mean by that statement? I want you to abide in, the, in this room until I return. I just want you to relax and rest and stay put. That's what it means to abide in this room. Got to hang out and, and chill. So we, when we combine this word abide with this metaphor of a grapevine and, and the branches, notice in the picture here, the, the vine is, is, you would almost say, the, the trunk of the, the tree. And it, it's the center of it. It goes down deep into the soil. And then these small little branches spring off of the vine. And from that, you get you know, the, the grapes. But the vine has access to all the moisture and nutrients of the soil. The branches do not. The roots of the vine reach under the ground. They tap into all the riches of the earth. And from that, they pump out to the branches all the life-giving richness, the the sap, the, the marrow, the juices all flow into those branches. And what is the job of the branches? It's just to sit there. All they have to do is remain there and soak up all this life-giving, energy-pumping glory that comes into them. And if that happens, the idea is that they will blossom, and then they will bear fruit, and then they will grow, and there'll be fruitfulness away from the center of the vine out into the world. Fruitfulness of of, uh, character and fruitfulness of work. You get the image. Isaiah chapter 5, we just read it a moment ago. It's the, it's the song of the vineyard. And it, God, he says that he had cultivated this vineyard, Israel, and he had planted her into a garden. And he came expecting to collect fruit from her. But back in Isaiah's day, Israel was wicked. It was corrupt. It, it yielded nothing but sour grapes. It yielded nothing but the fruit of injustice, bloodshed, a lack of care for the poor. Enter Jesus of Nazareth. He comes along and says, Oh, but I 
am the vine. I am the true vine, which can only mean that he is the one on whom all of God's promises are resting. He is the true Israel. And what he expects of, his, of the branches, of his followers, he simply expects that you would abide in him. Abide in him. And he says, you will produce good fruit. Remain in me. Like, chill out in me. And, and I will come and I will abide in you. And together, we will bear good fruit. What's so cool about this metaphor is Jesus' roots, where do they run? The, 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 the roots of the true vine run into the very center of the Trinity. His roots run into all of the incredible life and love that exists between the Father, Son, and the Spirit. He has access to all of that. And when we are connected to him, and this is what I find so incredible, when we are connected to him, it means that like his veins are our veins. His, his spiritual veins are our veins. And when we are attached to him, all the, the Trinitarian life is what flows up and through us. And that becomes the power in order to bear like the fruit of justice, the fruit of the care of the poor, the fruit of honoring other human beings, the fruit of the, fruit of the Spirit. Now, Jesus in the passage mentions several keys for abiding, and we're not going to go into these in any real depth. Verse 7, he says, you need to abide in my words. Later on in verse 9, he says, abide in my love. And verse 10, he says, abide in, in my commandments, and, and abide, abide in keeping my commandments. And particularly the commandment he's talking about is the commandment to love one another. And what I love, what I appreciate is there's a logical progression with each one of these. Like when we abide in his words, we will abide in his love. And when we abide in his love, we will, you know, abide in his commandments. We will, you know, trust and obey. They, they all flow to, together. And the simple way to know what you are abiding in is to simply look at the fruit that is coming out of your life. How do I know what I'm abiding in? Look at the fruit. Like if I'm abiding, let's say if I'm abiding in news media, for instance, then I promise you that the fruit of that is going to be fear, and it's going to be snarkiness, and it's going to be condescension. If I'm abiding in pornography, for instance, the fruit of that is going to be dehumanization of others and secrecy and shame. Like if you abide in junk, you're, you're going to produce junk. And, and what is the fruit of abiding in Christ? It's love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That is the fruit. Notice that Paul, the Apostle Paul is the one who wrote that. He's the, he doesn't say that are the fruits, plural. He says that's the fruit because it's in essence, it's almost like that's the diamond. And every one of those is just a different facet on the diamond. Love, joy, peace. When you have love, you have peace. When you have peace, you, you have self-control. You know, it, they're all connected together. And that is the fruit of abiding in Christ. Is there anything we can do, practically speaking, that will make it more likely for us to abide in him? I, I think we, we underestimate the power of habits. Like, habits form us. Habits are those things that we do over and over again without thinking. And habits end up forming us more than we form them. And that's why they are so powerful. And I really believe that changing your habits will help you abide in Christ 
so that your life is marked by the fruit of his presence. And so I want to give you seven like new practices or new habits for you to consider today. Please, I promise these are not laws that you have to follow. This is not me saying you must do all seven of these. This is me saying, would you consider what your life might look like if you changed your habituated practices? And here they are. The first one is, is a super habit um, or a so-called keystone habit. It's the first domino in a line. And by changing like this one domino, it has the power to change 10 others. And that is simply begin the day in kneeling prayer. Follow that up with reading scripture and do all of it before you touch your phone. <laughs> begin the day in, in kneeling prayer, follow it up with scripture. Do it before you even touch your phone because our phones are more than happy to set our habits for us, right? Like the programmers behind our phones, they, they want the very first thing for you to see in the morning is what? Is a notification. It's like this notification pops up, this notification. And the notifications end up shaping your desires. Because if I get a notification about some email that's in my inbox, like the first desire I have is I got to fix that. I got to tackle that. I got to do that. Or if I get some notification about, you know, somebody posted this on some social media app, um, that's shaping my desires. I got to look and see I got to see the pic. I got to hear what they say. Um, Let me read this article that just popped up. I tell you, beginning the day in kneeling prayer is such a keystone habit because in morning prayer, you have the opportunity to frame the whole of the day in terms of God's love for you. To get on your knees and say, Lord, I slept last night because you love me. And I've awoken this morning because you love me. And may I spend this whole day in your presence, aware of your love. There's something, I really believe there's something powerful in getting down on your knees and humbling yourself and activating your body like that in prayer. I mean, God says we can pray to him however. We can pray with our eyes open. We can pray with our heads bowed and eyes closed. We can pray with our hands up. But there's something to be said about just getting down sort of in the dust of the earth before your creator and say, Lord, I'm here because of your love. And that is the first domino that can just end up changing all the rest. Uh, Before you touch, before Instagram, before anything digital, before news, before social media, before whatever happened in the last eight hours, ideally before your kids wake up at the beginning of the day, like just started in, in quiet, in prayer, and then hearing God's words for you in scripture. Let, let the first words of the day be his words for you, rather than whatever the crazy thing that's showing up on your phone. I mean, when you even hear me say it like that, it just seems so obvious, right? And yet our habits have been formed by these things to do something entirely different. The last thing I want to say about this is I recommend kneeling prayer not only at the beginning of the day, but at least at three times of the day. At the beginning, and then I think it's great to do it in the middle of the day at work, where, where you just take a moment and you actively think of his presence there in the middle of your workday. And then you do it always at the end of the day before you go to bed. You kneel um, and, you, and you just pray. So the second suggestion that I have, you can combine it with the first And that is to create a gratitude ritual of some kind. You say, what is a gratitude ritual? Um, It it could be simple. 
It could be as simple as writing down three things during the day that you're grateful for and then sharing it at the dinner table with your kids, with your spouse at the end of the day. Three things, that's it. Three things that I'm grateful for that we could talk about all together. It could be as simple as on your morning commute to work, just designating the first three to five minutes of that commute, thanking God for everything. Just thank him for as many, many things that can come into your mind during that time. Gratitude combats against the poison that I spoke about at length last Sunday, the poison of discontentment, the poison of, of everything not being enough. Gratitude fights against the poison of negativity. Gratitude rituals are designed to help us become more aware, to open our eyes to the multitude of things that God has done for us that we easily just glance over and, and fail to acknowledge. I mean, as you probably have already thought about it, but as you realize, gratitude and ingratitude are tied, so tied to what you notice. Like, what are your eyes open to? So I think there's something so important to be said for a gratitude ritual. But I can hear an objection coming, and it's a legitimate objection. Like, Brad, there are bad things in my life right now. Am I supposed to just stick my head in the sand and pay no attention to that? Notice the dot, dot, dot. Create a gratitude ritual of some kind, but also offer at least one lament every day, a a vocalized lament. And that's really easy to do because there is so much to lament. Like, Lord, I, I lament the war that's going on right now. This is not how you designed um, our, our, our world to work. Lord, I lament the gross injustices that are done to the poor and people of color. Lord, I lament the sickness that my dear friend is going through. Like, this is not good. And you, there's something, just like how I said, getting on your knees is powerful. Vocalizing your lament is equally powerful. And I think when you do both of those things, um, already two massive dominoes have fallen. Number three, and you're going to say, is this really going to help me abide in Christ? <laughs> Exercise. Hear me out. Hear me out. You and I, we don't have bodies. We are a body. We don't have bodies. You are a body with an immortal soul. And you can't treat this thing as they're like, there's a me and then there's my body. No, like me is my body. And my ability to take care of my body is so important to everything that is healthy or not healthy in my life. You say, well, how can that help me abide in Christ? All I can do is speak from my own experience that when I, you know, go for a run or I hike or I I lift, like at the end when I'm sweating and I'm just tired, like I can tell you I never feel more thankful than I do at the end of exercise. And I hardly ever have my brain more focused, focused on the Lord than when I've got blood pumping through it and I just have... That, that release of, that comes in exercising. I think another thing, another reason why this is so important for us to abide in Christ, but we are in a terribly bad mental health moment in, in our culture right now. We've got so many people depressed, so many people who are suffering from anxiety, chronic anxiety. And the thing is, is you're not going to just pray that away. Like, it's very difficult to pray the depression away or pray the chronic anxiety away. Sometimes the very best thing we can do is just get out, get our heart rate up, sweat, breathe in the fresh air, 
and like get that stress out. There is something remarkably freeing by resetting our bodies that way. That's not the only action that I would recommend. Number four, find an activity in which you're able to give your complete focus without getting distracted or finding yourself concerned about the conditions of the outside world. And this is simply, this is referred to as a focal practice. A focal practice is something that draw your mind and your body to a specific moment. And it can be anything that you love. It can be walking, gardening, hiking, woodworking, art, playing chess, any number of things. The key on a focal practice is that when you are there, you are there and not somewhere else. Like the question, where am I? Where am I? Is not a geographical question. It is a mindfulness question. Am I here? Am I here completely? I think J.K. Rowling, she's, I think, a genius. And probably one of the best parts of the Harry Potter novels was her construction of this idea of a horcrux. Are we familiar with that? The way that Voldemort, the, the evil villain, tries to extend his life is he separates his soul into, I think it's seven different pieces, and puts them into an inanimate object. And, and his soul, as it's partitioned out, it goes into this thing and it becomes a horcrux. But what Voldemort doesn't realize is that by splitting himself into so many places at, at once, trying to be omnipresent at once, it ends up so dividing him that he's never truly present in, the, in any one given spot or moment. And it ultimately ends up being the thing that kills him. And what I would, <laughs> what I'd suggest to you is these are Horcrux creators. Because these are perfectly designed, our phones are perfectly designed to basically make it so that we are a million other places rather than right here. I mean, I can be on Twitter, I can be on Instagram, I can be on Facebook, I can be a thousand different places in the world rather than this one place where my feet are on the ground. It's a, it's a horcrux creator. And so for you to find a focal practice, it most likely means that you've got to turn this thing off, at least for an hour, at least for the time that you are doing whatever it is that you're going to be present in. And if you find yourself feeling really anxious and alone when you're away from your phone, you probably will find that. And it's just an indication that you're on the right track <laughs> because, because it really is that kind of problem. And I would say this too, that if you have kids, one of your focal practices has to be them at that moment. They need to have your full and undivided attention. And that means turning this off. And that means maybe asking them to turn theirs off. But you've got to give them everything that you have at that moment. Um, where am I? You have to be there with them. Number five, limit your intake of news and social media. And seriously, just consider giving them up entirely. What I have seen over the last 10 years as a pastor, and this is a universal, universal experience of pastors, is that the number one biggest source of anxiety for people age 50 and above is the news. It, the news is absolute rat poison for people, especially 50 and above, because it, they're just full of, consumed with fears, just fear after fear. By that same token, basically if you're 25 and younger, the number one source of anxiety and depression in your life is, is your Instagram. It's your Facebook. It's your social media. 
it's rat poison. And what we don't realize is just how much these things are killing us. They are killing our souls. I wish I could say to, to every news junkie, like, do you realize what God has tasked you to do in this world does not involve national politics? It doesn't. <laughs> it really doesn't, you know? I just believe that we will become the things that we give our attention to. And if we give our attention to like create these self-curated, beautiful pictures of ourselves that in no way reflect like really my real day and what I'm really going through, it just ends up, I don't think I need to go into it anymore. It, it, It just has to stop. I really consider giving it up. And if not giving it up, like, so limit your time. I, 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 like, plead with you. I plead with you as a pastor who, who loves you. I hope I love you guys and you feel my love. Let it go. Number six, and instead replace the time that you would have spent on news and social media with a relational touch point. A relational touch point is a flesh and blood human being. <laughs> it's another human being. Like, replace however much time you're spending on that stuff with relational touch point. Um, One author I read, what he commits to do every week is he says, I will spend every week a one-hour conversation with a friend. We will talk. We will talk face-to-face, a one-hour conversation. Another person I read, they commit to sharing a meal with someone else every week. It could be, I'm going to share a meal with a coworker at work. It could be, every Friday night, we're going to have someone into our house we share a meal. It's especially important to share meals with people who aren't followers of Jesus, to open up our table, to open up our homes to them. Um, but it just means relational time with real human beings rather than wasted time on digital human beings, which are not real human beings. <laughs> Replace that time with a real human. And then number seven is just Sabbath once a week and worship the Lord together with his people. You know, I talked about Sabbathing a few sermons back, and you can go back and, I think, listen to that sermon. But, I mean, God, he rested one in seven. If God needed a day off from work, you know, we do too. It's really a matter of trusting him, like trusting that six is going to be enough. 24-6, not 24-7. Six is going to be enough. And if that God who you believe in is worthy enough of worship, then you'll make it a priority to, to come and worship together as a church. Of all the acts of resistance that we can undertake in a world such as ours, gathering together one time a week in the name of Jesus seems to me to be like, the most important of all acts of resistance. The world is trying to form us into something that it wants us to be, and worship is, is God's tool for forming us into the thing he wants us to be. I I could go into this some more, but I should finish up. Now that we've reached the end of these seven, how many of these have you already habituated? Like, how are you doing? Your, Your report card. And if you had to pick just one to work on, what would that one be? I don't want you to hear this sermon and think that you're supposed to go out and fix and like do all these seven you know, I would just like you to focus on one, just one. Um, and then this might be a sermon that you return to, you know, later on as you're considering other practices. Whatever practices you adopt, and it doesn't even have to be these seven, I, I just want them to be practices 
that are helping you abide in Christ? Like, are they helping you be more present with Jesus, more mindful of his words, more mindful of his love? Are they building convictions in you that are countercultural to the convictions that we see in everybody else? I'm out of time, um, so I'll just say this last word about community. The goal is for us together to abide in Christ. You know, community is hard, um, but as hard as it is, it is worth it. Life is better when it's spent with people who see you on your good days and your bad days, who don't see a curated version of you, the always perfectly put together version of you, the never sad version of you. Um, Life is better when we live mutually interdependent on one another. And I find it interesting that the Benedictines, they would take a vow to live together as a community. And here's what one Benedictine I read said about this. We, we vow to remain all our life with our local community. We live together, pray together, work together, relax together. We give up the temptation to move from place to place in search of an ideal situation. Ultimately, there's no escape from oneself. And the idea that things would be you know, better someplace else is usually an illusion. And when interpersonal conflicts arise, we have a great incentive to work things out and restore peace. I think it's a profound insight to describe our constant search for a more ideal situation as a temptation or as an illusion. And also the insight that you can't escape yourself. (laughs) You can't escape you. I'm not saying that you have to remain at Reconciled Church. Uh, I'm not saying that. I am saying that God made your life to be rooted together. And what I'd love for you to do is commit to a group of people that are less than perfect, that are not idealized, and commit to a people in a place and attempt to abide in Christ together. I want you to eat meals together and pray together and get together and sing together and help each other together because we abide in Christ together. Uh, Commit to centering your life around Jesus together, to together push towards Christ-likeness, to together be branches that bear, you know, great fruit. Amen.